This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am so excited to have Caleb Gale here with us. He has a master's in public policy and an MBA. He's a Radcliffe Fellow. He's a professor of journalism at Northeastern University. He's done a bunch of other things, too. But more importantly, he's now the author of We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power. And it's a story that not a lot of folks know outside of Oklahoma and outside of the community. But I can guarantee you that once you have read this book and once you've heard Caleb, you will not forget this story in any way, shape, or form. So Caleb, thank you so much for making the time because I know you've got 8 million projects happening. But we're really, really happy you could be here today. Okay, no, I mean, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I feel, I feel honored. And uh, it's just so dope to be in conversation with you about, about this book. And it means a lot. Yeah, this book is really, I think there are going to be some folks who are very surprised about this book. So I want to talk about you for a second before we get to the Sure. Because when you and I first met, you mentioned that your parents picked you all up and moved to Tulsa from New York. <laughs> and suddenly, did. you were living in Oklahoma. And that does sort of start your entry into the story. So I do. Can we start there? And can we talk about sure. your family? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think to, to make it more strange is that my family is not only Black, um, as your listeners won't, won't will or they'll maybe, maybe they will know, maybe they won't know. Um, but my, my family's also Jamaican, right? So talk about fish out of water, right? But I think that all of the things that usually attract people of all ages to New York, right? The, the excitement, the, the extreme levels of diversity, it's relative unpredictability, it's cosmopolitan nature, um, all red, I think, for my parents, um, especially raising young children as, you know, all of the ingredients to make Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And I think that to some extent, the, the flatness, the predictability, the brown grass of Oklahoma just attracted my parents. Um, I think there are a host of other reasons, but if I were to whittle it down to, to those, I think we'd be pretty close, right? I think that they wanted to some extent to kind of... Um, put their children a bit in, bu- in the bubble wrap of Oklahoma, right? Um, which I think is is part of what attracted them. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, you know, who who I wouldn't have known. I mean, it was, there's more grass to play football and other sports, right? That's right. all that I knew. But as I became older, I realized both how strange it was for us to make that move. But then even more than that, not only how strange it was, but perhaps what sort of universe it put me into and what sort of kind of questions of identity would be, you know, smacking me in the face every time I, I woke up and walked around that city, that state. Okay, is that how your work started? Because, I mean, here you are, you've got multiple degrees. I just listed off, you know, only a tiny bit of your CV. But you're the smartest guy in the room, and I say that literally. <laughs> but here's the thing, you know how important story is. This is about the people. This is about the situations. This isn't just... A history book where you're like, and then this happened on this day. On the da, 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 da. you have latched onto a community that isn't necessarily directly yours, but it is because it's an Oklahoma story. This is, and it's a black a story of black families that have been kicked out of their community. And we're going to go in depth there. But how do you end up with this love of story that teaches you how 
to get in and do the work. Growing up in the tradition I grew up in, right, in church, specifically Black church, everything is enmeshed in a story, right? A sermon is, is really, you know, recounting stories, or not stories, recounting what people might count as facts from the Bible or any other sort of religious text is not enough usually in a Black church, right? You have mm-hmm. to weave it into stories, the crescendo, the fall, the, the intrigue, the tension, the productive tension. And so when, when interacting, even as a kid, with other kids who look just like me and hearing them say that they themselves were not, in their words, just Black, but that they would say, again, in their words, I got Indian in me, it haunted me, right? It told me that the kind of simple categories that I ordinarily would go with were not enough. And then when I found that I, as the the son of Jamaican immigrants, who's also Black, who hailed from New York, but then came to Oklahoma, my story couldn't fit neatly within the box of Blackness as it's conventionally understood. Um, And so to me, this story of, of of the Black Creeks wouldn't be complete without tying it more clearly to a family, um, a set of people who once called the Creek Nation home. And to be honest, their story is as American as anyone else's. The story of Oklahoma and the forgotten nature of its Black history mm-hmm. is as American as American gets. So to me, I couldn't, maybe it's the, the churchiness of my upbringing, but also kind of the haunting nature of these statements said in passing by kids who look just like me, but told me they weren't, that fills me with a curiosity to uncover how this history could be wedded to a story that didn't go in a straight line, that didn't have natural resolve or resolution. Um, that's, that's what got me here. Yeah, I'm going to quote you for a second. We often forget who we are, you write, because we've never been given a chance to remember properly. That's a lot of Americans' <laughs> history <laughs> that's, you know, for individuals and and for regions and, and for our country in, in general. So you started this book as a piece for The Guardian when you were on staff there, right? Were you still in school when you were? I was. I, okay. I did not like business school as much as you <laughs> might. <laughs> that was not my zone. So I busied myself with, with, with the right, the craft of writing and writing also for The Guardian. Okay, so here you are learning how to tell a story for an audience in a different way through Mm -hmm. a newspaper. You find, if I'm correct, you find the Simmons family first, right? And then you sort of start working your way backwards from them. So would you introduce listeners to the Simmons family? Sure. Um, they're, They're likely the most curious group of people um, that your your readers probably have not heard about, right? Um, I, I found out about them um, in part because the person filing the suit, the attorney filing the suit, bore the last name Simmons, Demario mm-hmm. Solomon Simmons, um, who in Tulsa is kind of your, he, he's the guy you call when there's a, an, an egregious violation of civil rights, regardless of what you look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Demario was filing suit in part because his family um, had a progenitor, the progenitor of that family, a guy named Mm -hmm. Cao Tom, was a, you know, in the eyes of some, a slave, in the eyes of his family, a free man um, who was Black, 
who, who they claim had jet black skin, um, but also was not just a citizen of the Creek Nation. He, at one point during the Civil War, was, was the chief of the Creek Nation, especially at some of his most arduous and difficult times. But this family, because of the work of Kautam, negotiating treaties on behalf of the Creek Nation with the U.S. government, um, not only created an opportunity for Black people to, Black people who were formerly enslaved by the Creek Nation, um, to become emancipated, but also to find a home there, citizenship, when that same type of citizenship proved elusive in the United States. Um, so that that's where the family comes from. And that foundation of citizenship kind of catapulted that family, right, beyond where many Black people could imagine being. But in 1979, that family's citizenship was lost, it was broken. And so Demario Solomon Simmons was this guy on the cover of the Tulsa World um, whose attention, who, who stole my attention in that moment such that we had to interrogate why, where did they come from, and how is this family's identity perhaps um, a representation of a much more messy picture of identity than we're willing to admit. And you also mentioned in the book that this is the first time for you as an American, as I, and I'm not entirely sure how old you were at this point, but that here was a Black family that had intergenerational wealth. Yeah. And that their ancestors had, you know, their previous family had done things for them that set them up in a way that was very different from your experience and your friend's experience of the world. And I think that's a really important point to make. And you even talk about being in graduate school, and it might have been a public policy class, because I think you referenced the Kennedy School, where you're saying <laughs> it would take, you learned in a 2016 study that it would take 228 years for a black family to make up the difference between their resources and a white family of a similar standing. And I think it's really important for people to understand the context of the Simmons too. I mean, there's oil money involved. There mm -hmm. is land. I mean, mm -hmm. Oklahoma is part of that big land grab that happened that were, excuse me, land rush Correct. that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet the Creeks who had been there before many other people were left out. Yeah. So, so, so the way in which I would kind of, kind of think about this is that imagine for a second, if Black people had gotten some form of reparations, mm -hmm. imagine if well over 100 plus years ago, we got the very same thing that white people got, which was the standing of citizenship regard with all of its benefits, regardless of race, regardless of cultural background, regardless mm -hmm. of ethnicity, right? And what Oftentimes, if I were to ask you to imagine it, it would be nearly impossible. But through the story of the Simmons family, it is, right? Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. you know, Jake Simmons Sr., who married into the family later on, he married Kyle Tom's uh, granddaughter, uh, ended up becoming a significant cattle rancher. You can look back in the annals of the Southern Workman, Booker T. Washington's mm -hmm. magazine, to hear this man talk about his 10-room house, right? I cannot imagine. I don't know admittedly, aside from incredible celebrities or people who have done incredibly well for themselves financially, I can't think of many Black families who can boast of the same today. That was back in like 1915. Mm -hmm. And then his son, right, because he was entitled to the land, right, because he had, he had been deeded by, by virtue of birthright land because of his citizenship, he became a significant oilman. 
right, uh, became kind of a, a, a jack of all trades when it came to the oil and land leasing business that made him exorbitantly wealthy. It made him the target of Jonathan Greenberg, a then Forbes writer who was helping to develop the Forbes Richest Americans list, mm-hmm. right? That, that is unimaginable. Now, I, I still can't really imagine it. Oftentimes, unless I had done this research and reporting, it would have felt something of a fiction, right? right. Um, and that fact that that family lived that way because of that citizenship is, a, is the very indictment of American citizenship as it approaches Black people who are not part of the Creek Nation. Um, it, it, it serves as a reminder of what could have been if we were more imaginative about the ways in which we construct identity in America. If we, had, if we were more imaginative about how we constructed citizenship and how we constructed recompense for those who had been left out of the American dream from the start. And the Creek community and the Creek culture was very sort of, if you are not doing well, your neighbor's going to step in and help you and plant your crops because you're sick. No one is going to leave you behind because Mm. you can't participate in the community, that everyone's sort of thinking of themselves as, in some ways, a unit, let's call it, you know, Mm. they're functioning in a very specific way. It's also partially because it's an agrarian society and, you know, you can't really Mm. leave someone behind if everyone has to plant their crops because guess what? If you don't have enough food, you will die. So there is that piece of it. But all of a sudden, here's Benjamin Hawkins of the United States government. And we got to talk about Benjamin for a second because he's <laughs> the one who's been tasked and he's, he's an, a confidant of George Washington. And, you know, it's he's very much a part of what is becoming the U.S. federal government. And mm-hmm. he has been tasked with bringing colonization and culture and civility, which is a word that makes me roll my eyes, to the Creek community. And it's not necessarily what the Creek community would ask for, but it's also how the Simmons families, uh, family and other folks like them are ultimately kicked out of their community. So can we talk about Benjamin for a second and his sort of ideas for the world and can we define civility? Sure, sure. <laughs> Can we define civility? That feels like a podcast in on, on life, with <laughs> right? many episodes and many seasons. <laughs> so let's see how how well I can synthesize uh, the myriad of responses is kind of running around in my head at the moment. Um, yeah. So look, Benjamin Hawkins is you know was at that time uh, you know during the dawn of you know the American Republic as as we kind of understand it today was was a bit of a, a a wonderkin right he had been a senator he had served on constitutional conventions he had you know been attached to George Washington before he became president he advised four presidents as the you know agent sent and dispatched to primarily the southeastern United States to administer Really, how do we, you know, the, the way in which they said civilized or civilization is already loaded with a lot of racism and, and anti-Indigenous behavior and policy. But it's also a cover for something more blatant, which is just how do we relegate these people who were here first to as little to nothing as possible, right? We, we teach them that you know, the communitarian approach that they have 
to the way in which they administer their possessions, their land um, is rife with problems. And instead we introduce them to a greater level of rugged individualism that oftentimes split people and split their land um, that taught them ways of working the land that were completely antithetical to the ways in which they had in the name of efficiency, right? And though he was heralded as a friend, right? Oftentimes history is littered with people who were once considered friends of those who eventually then became marginalized. Friendship was the pathway to marginalization for this person. And so as such, when you create scarcity, right? Where it didn't formally exist, when you introduce that, that brand of individualism, uh, you relegate and divide people, whether you intended to do so or not. Now, my contention in this story is that it was very intentional. <laughs> I don't want to let these historical figures who we revere off the hook, right? It was incredibly intentional. Um, so to some extent, you know, the analysis of someone like Benjamin Hawkins really unlocks the opportunity to kind of think about how do we today, right, try and apply our perspective on civilization and efficiency um, to divide people today, to, to, to diminish kind of their imprint on society, and how do we marginalize people even further today by superimposing our perspectives on what is civility and what is civilized? Does that make sense? Totally. And the other thing that Hawkins sets up for the Creeks and the rest of us is the idea of creating a race where there wasn't one before. I mean, he lays mm -hmm. that groundwork so that suddenly the Creek Nation says, oh, wait a minute, there's this part of our nation and there's this part of our nation. and Mm, we're not good combining everything into one. And, and so essentially an outsider comes in and says, hey, I have a better plan for you mm -hmm. and I'm going to help you execute it. And ultimately it is, as you said, not great for the community. So I want to take a minute because there are some phrases that you use mm. sort of in the middle of the book as we're, <laughs> as we're sitting in the Civil War and there's <laughs> you know the Indian Territory, there's the North, there's the South. And Oklahoma is still Indian territory at this point. But I'm not sure everyone knows the exact definition of chattel slavery. And, and this is important because, again, as you mentioned earlier, the whole idea of a freedman versus an enslaved person. And, but chattel slavery does come into the picture because capitalism um, in a way that maybe not everyone is expecting. So can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah, yeah. So look, I think it's, a, it, it, as you point out, it's really important just to kind of uh, define a few of those, right? So let's start with child slavery, right? So child slavery is just enslaving human beings, right? But not just that, right? You relegate them to property, square leg. But not only that, <laughs> you, you kind of, you know, uh, conscript all of their offspring for the same fate, right? That they can be bought and sold and forced to work without wages. Completely, you know, distinguish that form of labor from any form of labor, even if it's low wages. We can have a very significant conversation about how perhaps isn't certain, aren't certain forms of low wage labor even today, forms of slavery, perhaps, but they're not chattel slavery where someone's idea someone's humanity is compressed into output that they can produce 
right? Oftentimes, all the time for people who are not like them, or in other words, for people who are often white, right? So that's, that's chattel slavery. And it's important to understand in part because the mere sight of that, if you look kind of at the history of the Creek Nation, was appalling to most of the Creeks, if not all of them. It was, mm-hmm. was kind of, it was, it was disgusting, right? And, and they didn't want any parts of it. Um, but what was pretty common was kinship slavery, where people still had their humanity, you would work on their land, you would still break bread with them, um, you would have your full autonomy. And differently in the Creek Nation, even when they started to hold slaves, right, your children weren't conscripted to be bought and sold or forced to work without wages, without compensation, those children could very well be free. If you married someone who was Creek, you all of a sudden lost the vestiges of that slavery that so besotted and so you know muddied your pathway for freedom. So that that's really an important difference between kind of the America that was being constructed all around the Creek Nation and the Creek Nation itself, especially its experience of slavery. And to be clear, slavery of all types is evil and wrong, right? But we must at least kind of attach our understandings and definitions of slavery with nuance to understand the difference. But also part of what you're doing in this book is acknowledging that this happened. Yeah, exactly. That the intersectionality just failed. Essentially, one marginalized group turned on another because they were fed a bill of goods by someone from outside of the community. And if we don't look at these stories and if we don't say, oh, whoa, wait a minute, this happened and this is bad and where, what? If Mm. we don't interrogate and ask these questions, then we're going to keep probably making the same mistake over again. Yeah, I think though, like fed a bill of goods, right? It's not just that, right? It was... It was, you know, either you can, I think if you're, again, looking at it from the perspective of the Creek Nation at that time historically and the U.S. government, the U.S. government was offering a bit of a false choice, right? You can either negotiate up front with us and kind of be part of slowing what they saw as the inevitable decline, right? Or you can resist us and be met with the full force of the government. That was a threat that numerous, right, American leaders that we herald today leveled against the Creek Nation mm-hmm. and all of its inhabitants, Black or not, right? And I think that that part of it is very clear is that the Bill of Goods was more stick than it was carrot. And that's kind of how the U.S. has always dealt with those who are marginalized, right, is with more stick than carrot. And if we don't remember that history, as you were mentioning, right? We're not just doomed to potentially repeat it. We're doomed to ignore it and see it for what it really is today. You know, again, race is a construct. Many of us know this. You also define racist and racism in ways that might be new for some folks. So I do want to take a minute and talk about how you use them in the book, because I think it's a really important distinction to make. And again, you know, we're going from point A to point B, with some stops in the middle, but it is a direct line. It's a direct line from chattel slavery to where we are in our conversations about racist and racism. For sure. Yeah. You know, I think that even growing up, I was so, you know, I was so uh, hesitant to assign racist and racism mm-hmm. because it came with every ounce of pejorative sentiment that one could identify. And it also 
came with a certain level of, you know, not being able to be redeemed from it, right? Mm-hmm. It came with that sentiment as well. And so I am, you know, borrowing a great deal from Dr. Dr. Ibram Kendi, right, who kind of helps the reader understand, let's, let's first of all, kind of not assign the sort of pejorative value to the term. Let's use it as a way to assess outcomes, right, and outputs, right? And so quite frankly, right, like I'm not, I, I'm not in the game of reading the minds of people, right? Mm. I'm, not, I'm not there to ascertain or assess anyone's intent, right? I am here to be very clear that if our, if our policy aims today or historically in the case of the Creek Nation and its, its Black citizens or, or the United States and how it treated the Creek Nation and vice versa, right? I'm, I'm only here to say that the outcomes had divisive, painful, and, Hmm. you know, quite, quite inequitable impacts on certain people, right? And it was almost always on account of the racism that they felt, that they, that they demonstrated. So I, I don't think that, you know, I think oftentimes we can't really get past conversations because we're so hung up on feeling bad and kind of individualizing the term racism or racist as opposed to identifying the actions as racist and as the outwork of racism. I think the other thing I'd say also is that, you know, we're denying the humanity of people, the fullness of people's humanity who have done racist things, right? Mm -hmm. We have the capacity for extraordinary good and incredible evil, racism being one of those evils. And so if we all of a sudden kind of remove and extract and choose to forget these stories, these narratives, these histories, we're then stripping away so many people's humanity, the the, the opportunity set for them to be remembered both for their good and their bad. And, you know, I want to go back to something you said slightly earlier about nuance, right? I mean, we're back in the Civil War. You can find... 90 different people with 90 different opinions about the American Civil War, depending on where you're standing in a room, right? I mean, ultimately, what we're looking at is a piece of lost American history. Mm -hmm. And it's centered on anti-Blackness, which is something that we still wrestle with as a country today. And you would think that we would be able to make some progress on some fronts. And wow, we are not showing such things. And... How is it for you, though, as a writer, I mean, you're a journalist, you are trained to look for facts, you are trained to listen to your interviewees and put together the details. I mean, if you wanted to write fiction, you could. That's not what you're (laughs) doing here. So what's it like for you as a Black reporter and, you know, a student of America? I mean, you have a master's in public policy and the MBA still. (laughs) You have that, too. (laughs) But what does it mean for you as Caleb Gale, as the writer, as the American man who's also Black? Yeah, you know, in this in this work, you know, I did inject myself into it, right? Probably breaking some old school journalistic mm-hmm. rules um, and, and pursuing more of the, the Gatesley strategy of inserting myself into it, right? Um, and I think part of the reason I inserted myself into it is because both A, I was experiencing it, B, because this feels like a lost portion of American history, which, to be clear, has been, you know, 
not maybe this particular family's story, but generally this history has been studied so diligently by a collection of historians that I revere that it's going to be hard for a reader to find their way to the story if I don't offer up my story as a way mm-hmm. of getting there. So how does it feel as a Black man to kind of read this? I mean, you know, some would term it traumatic, right? But also there's there's a there's a... There's a joy that I have gotten exploring the beautiful complexity of identity, right? Especially for me, because I, again, not only did I grow up in Oklahoma, not only did I grow up in Tulsa, not knowing about what happened just miles away from where I lived um, in Black Wall Street and Greenwood, which, you know, we're recording today, a day after the 101st anniversary, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, not only, you know, not only did I grow up not knowing any of that, I also grew up going to a school where identity was uh, was race in particular was just not a matter of discussion, right? I grew up mm-hmm. hearing that the Civil War was the war of Northern aggression, not so much on behalf of slaves, but rather against states' rights and individuality, right? I, I grew up with an incredibly warped perspective on this world. So maybe that's the reason I got all of these degrees was because I really, really desperately wanted to figure myself out, right? To figure out how I can touch and understand this world. And as I've come to learn, I'm not the only one who's been deprived of the opportunity to, to really understand the roots of this country, um, the, the, the history of this world, but the history of this Republic. And so I think to some extent, I, I owed it to the reader to give them a life raft to, to kind of cross that Rubicon into this into this world that they would otherwise just never know. Did you have to leave Oklahoma to write about it? <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I don't think it would have been possible mm-hmm. to, to remain in Oklahoma and I think be as strident mm-hmm. at kind of litigating the case and um, kind of extricating excavating rather all of the facts um, necessary to put this together. Um, I think I had to leave Oklahoma also to kind of give myself the opportunity to, to view Oklahoma as what it is, which is probably the most imminent expression of what America does to people, right? Um, mm-hmm. In every, in every single way, America does a few things to marginalize people and Oklahoma is perhaps the most imminent expression of that for sure. What do you mean? Sure. You know, I mean, Oklahoma, formerly Indian Territory, was supposed to be the end of the United States government interfering in the lives of the various tribes that then composed what they then called, they being the U.S. government, five civilized tribes, right? Um, But still you saw the inventiveness, the creativity the willingness to constantly survive, the willingness to take on the burden of your own liberation by marginalized people, right? Whether they were black or indigenous or what have you. And then the ability to craft for themselves nations that would be accommodating of people who ordinarily would not get their fair shake in the United States. That's what what Oklahoma was. And yet and still the United States government 
sent people like Henry Dawes to create roles that would divide people based on fictitious blood quantum and you know, scientific racism to ensure that certain people would get certain allotments of land, all to ensure that white people who were cravenly looking at Indian territory in Oklahoma as an opportunity to expand their capitalism, to expand their empire, that's what America does. And so by understanding America's history, sorry, in in understanding Oklahoma's history, we can better understand exactly what it is that America does that oftentimes is so very painful to remember. But in understanding how it produces that pain, we can remember what was there before the pain, right? Which was the decision to survive and not just survive, but to live abundantly, even if living abundantly meant living on the margins of society. What did you learn about you? What did you learn about America? What did you not know you needed to know? Mm, mm. <laughs> what did I know that, I, what did I learn that I didn't really need, didn't realize I needed to mm. know? That's a tough question. I'm going to kind of avoid it. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> um, no, 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 it's no. Fair. <laughs> no, no. I, I, realize about myself mm-hmm. that I still have work to do, right? Um, don't we all, though? I mean, don't honestly, we all? like, I'm and not sitting here in some perch. And I grew up outside of Boston. So, I mean, I grew up with a lot of this sort of. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, integrated the town that I lived in. Mm, right. So to, 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 your, to that very point, there is work yet to be done. I think. You know, think about it this way. As you mentioned, that study that talked about 228 mm-hmm. years would be needed, or that's like how long it would take for us Black folks to kind of catch up. Mm-hmm. And that's assuming a lot of things go well, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That policies don't get in the way that we've seen since the founding of this country, right? Um, but I think that all goes to say that like the enormity of the challenge cannot be solved for through a couple of pieces of legislation past decades ago, can't be solved for despite what so many people thought is election signals through the election of a Black president. It cannot be solved for through police reform isolated in certain parts of the country, that this is an ongoing work that we're we're mm-hmm. signing up for. And so for me, hearing the story of the Simmons family kind of leading in many cases without really trying to lead, without mm-hmm. begging mm-hmm. to lead, leading the charge even today, it demonstrates that the work is no long, is not finished. And the enormity of the challenges which exist, and not just for Black people, not just for Black Creeks, but for so many marginalized groups around this country and world, the work is, is in no way finished. That, that in order to repair the world, in order to, to fix the place in which we live, we are signing ourselves up for an ongoing labor, but that labor is beautiful. Right. That's the last part. Right. Which is there's something amazing in talking to people like Demario. He enjoys telling you his family story. He's not won this case. Right. He he's his case has been dismissed more than once. Mm-hmm. Right. But there is joy in advocating for the changing of your world, changing of the world for the better, for for recalling, for not allowing the world to tell you who you shall be but rather reimagining a world in which you can be anything, right? And so to me, I, I think for me, all of this story represents is that the, the work in no way is finished. I think, you know, 
to quote Nipsey Hussle, who, you know, you can not like the marathon continues, right? It, it continues in an ongoing fashion and we must commit ourselves to that work uh, in all of its beauty. And you teach at the college level. And part of that makes me think that you've got to be a hopeful guy because you can't show up and teach a bunch of young people (laughs) how to do this kind of work and how to ask these kind of questions and how to chase a story. And in some Mm -hmm. cases, that means chasing people. Yeah. You know, you can't do that unless you actually believe that there is something at a further point, whatever that something is. And sometimes it's the story. Sometimes it's the community. Sometimes it's actual change. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's hope that there is a genuine possibility for change. But sure. you are a hopeful guy, yeah. On what day? No. Um, okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> no, I think that look, it's very hard to stare at the face of American history and say I'm incredibly optimistic. When I think a lot about you know um, all of the the huge accomplishments this country has had, right, save for some, right, it's often been us correcting ourselves after making egregious mistakes, mm. right? Mm. Um, but at the same time, like, I, I mean, I, I will take issue in any person who understands the history of, of quite a few, if not all of our founders, whose whose income came from slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not their part-time jobs, Right. Not their moonlighting gigs, but the way in which they ate was based on whipping people and mm-hmm. subjugating them to chattel slavery. The words they wrote are not their words, right? right? They're not their words. They did not invent liberty, right? They did not invent freedom of the press. They did not come up with those. That is not their, those are not their words. And so to some extent, I take great, I take great cheer and find great hope in reclaiming those words, realizing that quite frankly, it is the activity oftentimes of marginalized people that demonstrate the greatest level of patriotism. That in fact, oftentimes it's the dissent and the expectation that this country, that this Republic can be better or that it must be better, even if it doesn't feel like it can, it often comes from those who have not held power that have been on the periphery of decision-making in this country, that then gives me hope. That those words are not theirs, that those ideas are not theirs, and that quite frankly, we can wrestle them back and use them for our own means, which would be for the purposes of achieving greater levels of equity in this country. So that's what provides me hope. And hope is a muscle. Hope is something we can build. It is. It's not easy every day. (laughs) It is not. (laughs) Not, I am not going to pretend for a second, but it is, it is something that you can add on to. Caleb Gale, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really, really looking forward to having people read We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power. It's out now. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hello, everyone. It is time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books for you to pick up when you come in for your copy of We Refuse to Forget. I'm Becky, coming to you from my store in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm joined, as always, with my book buddy, Mark. Hello. (laughs) Hi, Mark. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and get started today. Um, The book that I thought of to go along with this is 
Killers of the Flower Moon by David Graham. Ah, nice. It's a good one. Uh, This is a true crime story that talks about the Osage murders uh, and the creation of the FBI. Um, This takes place in the 1920s when the Osage um, Indian Nation in Oklahoma, very rich because they had uh, discovered oil on their land. Um, This group, they were just very wealthy, like extremely, like they were building mansions. They were sending their kids to Europe for schooling. Um, But um, in the 20s, then um, suddenly these strange, mysterious murders started to occur. And um, people were investigating. Nobody could figure out what was going on, how this was happening. But one by one, um, this tribe was getting smaller and smaller. And finally, um, I think it was they got up to like 24 um, Osage um, Indians had been killed. And finally, the newly formed FBI, though not actually officially called the FBI, it's like 10 years later, they became the FBI. But um, this Bureau of Investigations, they... um, they started, they looked at it. They were like, hey, let's take a look. And um, this was under J. Edgar Hoover. So yeah, it, it wasn't off to a great start, but um, he did have the the idea to get um, a former Texas Ranger involved. Um, I believe his name, uh, let's see here. Oh, I've forgotten his name. Anyway, he, um, he takes over the investigation and he actually gets an undercover group together to try to find out what's going on, who's killing um, you know, this nation and, um, and kind of what the, the, the idea is behind all of this, um, in his group of, um, undercover agents, he actually is able to get one of the only Native American, um, agents involved. Um, I think there were maybe like a handful, a very small handful in the group at the moment, but anyway, they go undercover and what they find is, truly heinous. It's just, it's eye-opening. It's such an eye-opening book. Really, what an interesting part of it for me that I found was that um, the the Osage Nation, Osage Nation, um, they actually lived in Kansas. They had property there um, under Jefferson's agreement with them. And then because of all of the settlers that were coming in, the U.S. government said, oh, that land's too nice. We're going to take it away from mm-hmm. you, and we're going to send you over to this rocky land over here in Oklahoma. And, uh, well, wouldn't you know, that land ended up having oil. So, hmm. Um, anyway, I digress. This is just a fantastic book. You're going to learn so much. And it's Killers um, of the Flower Moon by David Gran. Mark, what do you have? Ooh, <laughs> such a good pick. Thank you. Oh, man, that book is so good. Mm. Um, I chose a fiction book, actually. Oh, um, okay. One that uh, kind of came across my radar at random, and I've never really read anything quite like it. It's mm-hmm. called Johnny Appleseed by Joshua Whitehead. Uh, Joshua Whitehead is a he's an OG Cree two-spirit poet and author. Um Another term that he uses is indigiqueer. Um, so his main character, Johnny Appleseed, not the Johnny Appleseed that you remember from lore, um, is an indigiqueer young man who has moved off of the reservation to find his way and make a life for himself in the big city. Um, the book bounces back and forth between his time leaving the reservation and coming to terms with himself and his sexuality and the sometimes dark and gruesome journey that um, 
that takes him on, um, as well as the return to the reservation for um, a funeral for the death of his stepfather. He needs to make enough money to get back home to honor a family member. And the way that these two uh, time periods match up is very, very interesting. This is a very frank book. Um, it's pretty raw um, and sometimes graphic, uh, but absolutely beautifully written. And uh, like I said, I have not read anything like this before. Uh, and it opened my eyes to a realm of Native American culture that I really hadn't even explored or thought to explore. So if you are looking for a different facet of Native American life, please check out Johnny Appleseed by Joshua Whitehead. It is wonderful. <sighs> That's really good. I love that we both picked books that were Native American in their kind of representation. Yes, but um, in very different ways. Very different ways. Yes. Yours, I yeah. When, mm. Well, when you first said Johnny Appleseed, I did immediately. You're think, like, oh, how cute. I no, know him. It is oh, not a cute book, but yeah. it is a fantastic book. It sounds very oh, powerful. So, so yeah. All right, guys, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for listening and watching to Port Over. Um, please make sure to give us some support with a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. My name is Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by Becky. <laughs> you can follow us at BN Westchester, or just follow Port Over in general at mm -hmm. Barnes & Noble. Pretty easy. Okay. Thank you all so much for this. Uh, have a wonderful day, and happy reading. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.